If you have your Bibles, if you'll open them up to Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, let me um, give you just a little bit of update on our parking lot as well. We are trying to work towards getting construction started out there. The torrential rains that we enjoyed has slowed down the concrete industry, and so we're trying to work through all that, but we do anticipate here in the coming weeks having the uh, parking lot replaced and having uh, some nice lights in the in the parking lot as well as getting the water loop that we've needed to do ever since Noah came off the ark, I believe. And so we'll be getting all those taken care of here in the coming weeks. We still need uh, $1,300, though, to make our goal that we were looking at. We've been stuck at like 1300 for for like six weeks. So so, uh, you know, you know, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And so we want to give you an opportunity to be cheerful today. And so I'll even let you write that check out while I'm preaching. I don't care, you know, but uh, somebody just uh, give that money so that we can get over the top on that and get to where we need to be. Well, as a pastor, I've seen a troubling pattern. Uh, God will start working in someone's life and they will draw close to God and they will go through a season of spiritual growth and you'll just see the countenance of the Holy Spirit upon them and then something happens. There's a distraction that comes into their life somehow. Maybe it's a life change. It's a student that goes off to college or they fall in love with somebody that may not share the same values that they share and over time Uh, You see this happen, they start drifting from their spiritual roots, they start drifting from the Lord. At the same time, whenever you talk to them, whenever the noise stops and they're all alone, they remember the Lord and they remember those sweet moments where they were close to the Heavenly Father and there's a fondness within them, but in the course of life and in all the activity of life, they've drifted away from the church and from the things of the Lord. Sometimes it's a difficult moment in life. Someone dies, get laid off at work, and you go through a financial difficulty. You go through a divorce. And so people begin moving away from God and asking this question, does God care about me? Sometimes through all the desire for success, we get caught up in our quest for stuff and pleasure. And in this quest for this, we stop listening to godly wisdom, and we find ourselves living on the treadmill of trying to find satisfaction through materialism, which is a lot like eating cotton candy for dinner. You know, you put that in your mouth and it's gone. You know, it doesn't fill at all. It just seems like it never ends. Well, our parable today answers some deep questions. It answers questions like, does God care about me? Can I come home to God? Questions that many of us wrestle with in our lives. So look to Luke 15 and verse 1. The story starts out with the context, and it says all the tax collectors and the sinners were approaching to listen to him. The church my father pastors, my dad's been a pastor now for over 50 years. He's one of those heroes of the faith that just consistently preaches the Word of God and is just a man of God in the community. But the church that he's pastored since 1980 is in one of the rougher places in the Fort Worth area. And throughout college and seminary, I had the privilege of of being the student minister there in the church in which I grew up. So one summer, 
we started having a lot of kids from a street gang come to know the Lord. And these were pretty rough kids, and they started getting, getting you know, their hearts stirred for the Lord, and they started bringing their, their friends to church. And we got them all to go to camp. And so I, I brought all these kids that were part of this gang uh, to summer camp with all these innocent little suburban kids. And it was great. I mean, you should have seen it whenever we got off the bus and, and the camp director saw us show up and their eyes got all big. And I actually found out later that they held a little meeting to discuss how they were going to handle us whenever we showed up at camp. I mean, it really, it really rocked their world in a lot of ways. Well, Jesus' message was radical in nature. And through the course of who Jesus was or is and, and what he taught, he began attracting some non-church people, some people that didn't always hang out at synagogue or temple. The Bible says that he attracted the tax collectors. Now, if you know anything about ancient history, the tax collectors were the ultimate sellouts. Whenever Rome would conquer a province, they would hire some people to be the tax collectors, and they would basically extort money from their own people. They would give some of it to Rome, and then they would also keep some of it for their own lifestyle. And so the tax collectors within the community were absolutely despised, and they were hanging out with Jesus. The scriptures also say that the sinners were hanging out with Jesus. Now, the sinners could be twofold. One, it could be those that had never had a relationship with God. They were basically uh, secularists, pagans, if you will. Or it could also be the spiritual wanderers in the community. Young Jewish men and women that had grown up being taught the ways of God, but over the time they had left the fold. They had wandered from God. They were probably trying to survive and squeeze out some fun moments in life, but they were a long way from God. So in verse 2, the Bible says that the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, the Pharisees were the most conservative denomination, if you will, within Judaism during Jesus' day. They were very rigid in how they disciplined their spiritual life. The Pharisees and the scribes, the scholars, were complaining. Now, what were they complaining about? This man welcomed sinners and he eats with them. So the church people, is what I'm going to call them, see what's happening. Here's Jesus. He is eating with tax collectors and sinners. Why isn't that special? That didn't set well with the spiritual folks of the community. Now, you, you think about these people, and, and in some ways they, they weren't all wrong because uh, the tax collectors and the sinners were, were rough folks. I mean, they, they were a long way from God. But the Pharisees and the scribes here, they, they knew about God. They were smart people. They were successful. But their, their main spiritual shortcoming is that they were very critical of others, and they were uncaring towards people that were striving to get to know the Lord. And so they had, over time, kind of become like that Christian that nobody wants to be around. Because they were always negative, they were always criticizing, and nobody was good enough. So in verse 3, this is the context that leads Jesus to tell this parable. 
He says, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? Now, for those of us who grew up in church, we've heard this parable before. We call it the parable of the what? Parable of the lost sheep. And so whenever Jesus says, now what man among you would not leave the 99 and go after the lost sheep? Whenever we hear that, we instantly say, well, of course the shepherd would leave the flock. Of course. I mean, this just makes sense. This is how I've always known it. It's how I've always studied it. But in Jesus' day, these folks that were listening actually knew something about sheep. Now, I'm not a farm boy, but I've been taught a little bit about sheep along the way. One of the things that I've learned is that sheep aren't the smartest animals in the world. I mean, nobody says, that boy of mine, he's as smart as a sheep. <laughs> well, now, maybe you do say that, but it, it kind of is, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of saying something that's not very positive in that situation. Sheep stink. If you're around sheep, they, they don't smell, smell well. This week, I, I took the family up to... Uh, see uh, my uh, my in-laws, and they have a place up in the mountains in New Mexico, and so uh, one of the things I like to do is, is run a little bit, and so I was out running one evening, and I'm running around this this uh, circle of houses that's there in the Lincoln National Forest, and one of the neighbors starts pointing at me, and I'm like, what's going on here? And what he's pointing is that there was a skunk right around the corner, and I was like, 10 yards from it, and I, I came very close to getting sprayed by a skunk. You say, well, well, what'd you do? I got out of the way, you know? I moved as far away from that skunk as I possibly could. Why? Because skunks stink. Well, the same thing's true about sheep. Sheep stinks. Whenever you're around smelly animals, you tend to get away from them. Thirdly, sheep were in abundant supply. Sheep were not rare in Jesus' day. You could go down to the Jerusalem Kroger, and you could get sheep for $1.99 a pound. So to Jesus' audience, I mean, you could spare a sheep. It's not that big of a deal. And so when Jesus said, what, among, what man among you wouldn't leave the 99 and go after the one, there were probably some in the audience that said, I, I've got an objection to that. First of all, it doesn't make business sense. If you go after the one, you may lose the 99. You know, sometimes God calls us to do some things that don't make business sense. To go out on faith and to follow Him, even though it's not rational to ourselves. Some within the audience would say, well, it's the sheep's fault. The sheep needs to take responsibility for its own actions. He left the flock, let him suffer. Some people might say, well, what are other people going to say? If you leave the flock, I mean, these shepherds, they were poor people. They were hired to watch the flock. And if they leave the flock to go after the one, there's going to be some people in the town that criticize them and say, well, you should have stayed with the sheep. And there's going to be others that say, well, no, you should have gone after the one. And so, uh, you you know, if, if they leave the flock, they might be criticized. It's also true sometimes in doing something for the Lord, for the Lord, you put yourself in a position where you're going to be criticized. I often tell people, if you want to be a criticized person, just do something. Just do something. You do something, there's going to be somebody out there to criticize you. I promise you that. 
Well, all these objections were overruled. And they were overruled for one primary reason. And that is that the shepherd cared about his flock. And the shepherd cared about this individual sheep that was lost. And so the shepherd begins a desperate search for the sheep. When I was about six years old, uh, I was at church one Sunday. And after church on Sunday, I went up to one of the Sunday school rooms and I began playing in the Sunday school room. I think if memory serves me right, I was drawing on the chalkboard and time went by. And my father and mother went on home. Uh, They thought I had gone home with my sister. And so everybody was gone, and I was left all by myself at the church. You're supposed to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm emotionally scarred, but I've gone through a lot of therapy, and I'm doing better. It wasn't until they sat down at lunch and they called me to the lunch table that they realized I wasn't around the house. And so they called the church, and I think there was somebody still at the church who took the phone call, and they hunted for me, and they said, yeah, he's, he's still here. But I was a lost child. You ever, you ever lost a dog or a child? You ever go through the search of trying to find someone that, that, that's special to you? You can relate to the plight of the shepherd. He was probably posting lost sheep signs on every telephone pole. He was calling the sheep shelters. Have you seen him? He's microchipped, you know. He was searching everywhere. He had to find this sheep. Well, in verse 5, when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. So there's this moment where he finds the sheep, and he doesn't beat the sheep. He is joyful, and he comes to the sheep, and he puts it on his shoulders, and and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. And then Jesus transitions into the meat of the parable. I tell you in the same way, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Ouch. There is more joy in heaven over one of these tax collectors or one of these pagans, one of these wanderers who turns from their way and comes back to God than there is over 99 people who think that they are so righteous that they don't have anything to repent about. In verse 5, the shepherd cares for the wounded sheep. He puts them on his shoulders. In verse 6, the shepherd comes home with the wounded sheep. He brings the sheep back to the fold. And in verses 6 and 7, they celebrate. They throw a party. There's gifts, little sheep hats, a great meal. Brought their family, their friends. They probably had sheep lights, music, treats, apple cider, you know, all the good stuff that you have with a party. Now, the lessons from this parable are far-reaching. And they reach different segments of our audience today. And so, first of all, I want to talk to the church people. Those of us that go to church every week, those of us who um, love the Lord, who, who try to live a godly life. 
I want to, I first of all, encourage you in a very positive way that it's okay to stand up for your values. It's okay for you to stand up for Christian values. In fact, uh, you, better, you better stand up for them because there's some people that are, are working hard to diminish your ability to do so. And so as church people, you know, you don't need to feel guilty for eating at Chick-fil-A. You don't need to feel guilty for walking in the walk for life or defending biblical marriage or being disturbed by things in the world. There's a couple traps that, that Christians often fall for. One is this trap that if I say that I have different values than somebody else, then that means that I hate them. And that's not true. You can have different values than somebody else and not hate the other individual. And that also can fly the other way. Sometimes people that have different values than us, we automatically assume that they hate us. And the reality may be that they're spiritually thirsty. And that emotion is stirred because they are searching for something. We also sometimes fall into this trap where we think that if I communicate that something is wrong, then I'm being judgmental. So if I think that anything, any behavior or anything is, if I call it sin, then that puts me in the role of judge and, and who am I to judge. And so we, we can't really call anything, anything wrong. Understand that being judgmental is whenever you pronounce consequences and or wrath on someone. And it's not within your authority to do so. Or it's whenever you forget that the people that you're talking to or talking about, that they also matter to God. Or when you forget that God pursued you while you were still a sinner. The core problem of the church people in this story is that they didn't realize, they they thought that they were so righteous that they had nothing for which to repent. And so they thought they had everything in line. And Jesus says, no, you also have things in your life that you need to repent from. Now, in the, in the ministry of Jesus, we often talk about how uh, he hung out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners and how whenever they caught the woman in adultery, he said, uh, he that hath not sinned cast the first stone, neither do I condemn thee, and all that. But one of the things you need to make sure that you also read in the teachings of Jesus is that he did not ignore the sin. You find this with the woman caught in adultery. You also find this with the woman at the well. He would deal with their sin, and he would also tell them to go and sin no more. But one of the things that is significant about our Lord was that he met people where they are, not where they should be. And he would bring the love and grace of God to where they were and then bring them to where they needed to be with God. So in a world full of tax collectors and sinners, what's a Christian to do? How do we respond in the world that we live in? Well, let me give you five things that we can do. First of all, continue to communicate the good news of Jesus in both word and deed. Continue to share the gospel. You can't save anybody. That's the Lord's doing. He's the one that forgives sins and saves people. But you can share the good news of Jesus Christ. And you can do that both verbally 
And you can do that through your actions as well by being a godly person. Second, refuse to embrace or minimize the sins of the world, but at the same time, don't spend your time judging when you could be loving. Be a loving person. Be someone that draws people to the cross rather than repelling them from the cross. Thirdly, accept the fact that a changing world does not surprise a sovereign God. Accept the fact that a changing world did not catch the Lord off guard. He's not up in heaven going, oh, man, I didn't see that coming. What am I going to do? Oh, wow, man, all my plans are up there. No. Changing world doesn't surprise a sovereign God. It doesn't make evil right, but it doesn't surprise your God. Fourth, don't trust in yourself. Jesus didn't call you to believe in you. He called you to believe in him. So give yourself to God anew and allow, you, allow God to use you for his glory however he sees fit. One of the lessons that I'm learning is that you can make plans and you can have ideas of this is how I'm going to do it and this is where we're going and God can have other ideas. We're learning that with child number four, you know. On the way, yeah. Number five, never forget that God is pursuing the lost sheep. There are some lost sheep out there, and your heavenly Father is at work in their life pursuing them. Now, some in the audience, you might relate within the story to the lost sheep. And you remember those days when you were close to God. You remember those days whenever you would gather for worship and you would sing from the depths of your heart. You remember those days when you would pray to the Heavenly Father, whenever you would study Scripture, whenever you would hear the Word of God taught and you hungered and thirst after righteousness. But now, somewhere along the way, you've wandered, you've gotten busy with life, and spiritually you often find yourself dry. I want to remind you today that God hasn't let you go. You're part of the flock. He's pursuing you. He's after you. He's not going to let you go. And one of the lessons of the parable is that when you're the lost sheep, the shepherd's pursuing you, and it's time to come home. Some in the audience might relate to the sinners and the tax collectors. You say to yourself, you know, I've done a lot, of, a lot of wrong things in my life. I've done things of which I am ashamed. And I wonder, does God care about me? Does God care? If you ever ask that question, does God care, look to Bethlehem. And you see that God cares because he sent his own son. Look to Calvary. And you see that God cares because he allowed his own son to lay down his life. Look to the empty tomb, and you see that God cares enough to overcome death. And then look to the sky, because the Scriptures teach us that God cares enough to come again. So to the sinner and the tax collector, the lesson of the parable is the story of the gospel. It's John 3.16, that God loves the world in this way. There's a lot of things broken about this world. 
And it would be easy for us to say, well, God shouldn't fix it. I mean, let the world deal with its own problems. Let it take responsibility. Why should God intervene into the scene? Because He loves us. For God so loved the world in this way that He gave His one and only Son. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, Jesus said, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The call of Christ is a call to believe, to place your faith, to place your trust in Him. And so if within this parable you relate to the sinner and the tax collector, you say, Lash, what should I do? What you should do is turn from sin and turn to Christ. Believing in Jesus as Savior and Lord, trusting in Him for your salvation. Well, our students had a great week at camp. And it, it delights my heart to hear that God is calling students from our church to be in ministry. It, it delights my heart to hear that students are making decisions in their walk with Christ. And I can't wait to hear what's going to happen in this week ahead as we take our preteens to camp as well. Did you know that back in the 1800s they had camp? It was actually a little different than our camp. It wasn't just for the kids. They used to have camp meetings. And camp back then meant the entire community would come out in the evenings to the camp meetings. They had these throughout the early 1900s as well. In fact, some of you may remember going to camp meetings. Do anybody remember the camp meetings? Yeah. Well, there was a camp meeting back in the 1800s, and the worship leader was a guy by the name of William Kirkpatrick. And he noticed that one of his singers kept leaving each night. They'd get up and they would sing. And then there was one of the singers that before they prayed, before the sermon was preached, he he would just slip on out. And this began troubling William. And so he began praying for the man, had some conversations with him, and then eventually was led by the Holy Spirit of God to write a song just for this man. And because he was one of the soloists, he, he had to sing it. So the song went, coming home, coming home, never more to roam. Open wide thine arms of love, Lord, I'm coming home. I've wandered far away from God, and now I'm coming home. The paths of sin too long I've trod, Lord, I'm coming home. And that night, whenever they sang that song, God used that hymn to bring that man to salvation. And my prayer for you is that God might use this parable that we've studied today to bring you home, to bring you to him. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to a time of commitment. Paul's going to come and lead us in our invitation hymn. If there's anything that I may pray with you about, if today needs to be the day where you give your life to Christ and salvation, if there's a need in your life that I can pray with you through, I'll be here at the front. It's always my joy to be here for you. If you have questions about the Lord, I'll be here after the service as well and 
would be glad to help you. Our deacons are available as well as their wives to help you with questions that you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your abundant love towards us. It is overwhelming because we are not deserving of your love. But you choose to extend it anyway. And I thank you, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I thank you, Father, that you love us in spite of ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you might drain us of toxic Christianity that pushes people away from the cross. Lord, you spoke of the living water of the Holy Spirit that flows within the lives of believers and quenches the thirst of humankind. And I ask, Lord, that in my life and in the life of others that are in this room, that that living water might be flowing. Help us, Lord, not to get caught up in self-righteousness. Help us, Lord, to stand for those things which are righteous, but to do so remembering that we are saved by grace. And I pray for those that have wandered, that you will draw them home today. I pray for those that have not yet believed, that today they will believe. Thank you, Lord, for this parable. May it change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.